This is special programming from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. And for KQED, I'm Lily Dramali. It's been 23 weeks since the campfire started. Tonight on After Paradise, we hear the latest on PG&E, debris removal, and the redesign of Paradise. We also hear from residents rebuilding in Coffee Park, a community in Santa Rosa that was destroyed in the Tubbs fire about a year and a half ago. We also take a look at homelessness after the campfire and hear a story about the Helltown Hotshots, four men who stayed behind to help save their community. And don't forget, we want to hear your questions. Ask anything you want to know about post-campfire recovery at mynspr.org. For Thursday, April 18th, 2019, this is After Paradise. We begin with a development in the investigation into the campfire. At a PG&E bankruptcy hearing in San Francisco Wednesday, we heard from a deputy in Attorney General Javier Becerra's office who we've now learned is investigating the cause of the fire with Butte County District Attorney Michael Ramsey. This, as CAL FIRE, is doing an investigation of its own. We also learned that those prosecutors have collected evidence, sections of the transmission line that may have sparked the campfire, and that that evidence is being sent to the FBI in Quantico, Virginia, for further investigation. In other important news, the deadline to sign up for the state's debris removal program passed earlier this week. Roughly 500 people still have not signed up. County officials are now considering gaining access to people's homes through more extreme measures. KQED's Sonia Hudson reports. County officials are still trying to reach people they couldn't before the deadline, but in the next few weeks, they'll likely have to ask a judge for a warrant to enter people's properties. Butte County spokesperson Casey Hatcher says some people didn't know their destroyed structures were big enough to require removal. Some are trying to hire a private contractor. Some people, I think, still feel um, overwhelmed with making um, these types of choices and, and just really needed some questions answered and some additional time. Hatcher says it's important to clear the debris because it contains toxins that can get into the water. State officials estimate that the removal process will be done by early next year. I'm Sonia Hudson in Chico. Today, those determined to return home are gathering to talk about rebuilding the town. But many residents also met earlier in the week at Paradise Alliance Church to weigh in on recovery plans. NSPR's Mark Albert has more. Tuesday's meeting was an opportunity for the public to check Urban Design Associates' work. The Pittsburgh-based firm is compiling residents' ideas that officials say will guide reconstruction. The top of the community's wish list includes some fairly obvious priorities for a town nearly wiped from the map by the campfire, but the list also includes a few elements residents say Paradise never had, growing as it did over the decades with little planning or foresight and only incorporating after Proposition 13 curtailed local government's ability to provide services. Megan O'Hara is a principal at UDA. A safe street network. Number two, more businesses and amenities. Number three, underground or electric utilities. It's a theme. Um, Number four, more parks and outdoor spaces. Number five, a walkable downtown. Number six, improve the evacuation safety. Seven, Uh, thoughtful planning approach. Number eight, diverse and affordable housing. Number nine, install the sewer system. And number 10, sustainable design. 
She said more than 1,000 people took the company's survey, something that raised spirits among those assembled. We thought this was probably the most exciting question. Are you planning to come back? 51% yes, and another 15% interested in Paradise Town Councilman Steve Crowder said the complaint he hears the most concerns the pace. It's been five plus months. I want to come home as bad as anybody else. It's not moving fast enough for me, but, but you got to be real about it too. After a chaotic escape, it's unsurprising that evacuation routes crowned the needs improvement category. Despite being named a top concern, Megalia resident Judy Lovell wondered aloud if the narrow stretch of Skyway at Megalia Reservoir will ever be addressed. The evacuation route is only over the dam. One broken down car and you've got a real mess. However, Lovell gave the team facilitating the process and gathering comments high marks. They're thorough, and every little sentence that was written, they have, they've listened to and incorporated it. And, I, and I've written some sentences, so I kind of said, oh, yeah, that was mine. <laughs> I fit into that little slot right there. <laughs> Rather than require the installation of costly solar systems, Lovell said she'd prefer programs making rooftop panels more affordable to those on low and fixed incomes. Connection to the town is obvious among many evacuees. On the verge of tears, Connie Fisher said she journeyed 75 miles for the meeting. She feels disconnected and unable to weigh in on the process, especially without computer skills or access. I don't know anything that's going on because I'm way up in Quincy and I don't know Facebook, how to do that. and So it's very hard. You know, and it was my grandpa's house. My parents and then my house, I was going to give it to my kids, and it was just too much. Nonetheless, she was heartened that making it easier and more enticing to reach destinations on foot was named a priority. She said residents might bump into each other more frequently, build connections, and improve the sense of community. Further revised plans will be unveiled at another meeting tonight. It's scheduled to begin at 7 at the Paradise Alliance Church. Tomorrow, the results of an entirely separate process led by architecture faculty and students from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo will be unveiled. Presentations about their concepts and visions for reconstructing paradise will be held at the Paradise Alliance Church at 9 tomorrow morning. Mark Albert, North State Public Radio News. Paradise UDA has built a website with information about the process and ways to add your voice. You can find it online at makeitparadise.org. It's hard to know what the new paradise will be once it's rebuilt and how many people will stay. For some possible insight, we turn to a place that's a year ahead in its fire recovery efforts. In October of 2017, the Tubbs fire destroyed several thousand homes in the wine country town of Santa Rosa. One of the neighborhood's hardest hit was Coffee Park. The first residents moved back about seven months after that fire, and more families have been returning since. From KRCB, reporter Adia White has the story. Joan Mortensen shows me around her Coffee Park home, now nearly rebuilt. Her entire street is a construction zone, the houses at various stages in the process. We look at her new kitchen windows past a charred redwood tree. On the street next to hers, the houses didn't burn. She tells me that her house nearly didn't either. That's as much as she wants to say about the night of the fire. The rest is too painful. 
This was my first house. I bought it uh, soon after I got divorced. It really meant a lot to me in terms of my independence, and I loved this house. Mortensen always knew she would rebuild the house, only her opinions about how she would do it have changed. The dream has really changed a little bit. It's not exactly the way it was, and that's a good thing. There are more windows now, an added laundry room, and it's a cheery yellow instead of gray. Just a few streets over from Mortensen, Jim and Joy Neal moved back into their new home on February 13th. Jim says the move-in date was a Valentine's present for his wife, Joy. They were offered a good amount of money for the property. Jim says he was tempted at first, but just couldn't. I, I just don't like the idea the fire might have burned me out, but I, I uh, you know, I want to say I came back and came back better than I was. Uh, that's kind of a matter of personal pride and not giving up. State data shows over 2,000 people left Sonoma County between 2017 and 2018, largely due to the wildfires. The county lost more people that year than any other county in the state. The Neal's neighbors moved to Arizona not long after the fires, and their lot is overgrown with weeds. But Neal says he and his wife are now much closer with the neighbors who did decide to rebuild, after what they've been through. We lost everything in 30 minutes. Uh, that, that is a tremendously emotional experience. We'd come here and just break down and cry, and we all did that. Of the 3,000 homes in Santa Rosa that were destroyed in the Tups fire, the city says about 1,000 are currently under construction and around 250 have been finished. I'm Adia White in Santa Rosa. Well, we have been following the fire's effects on homelessness, and spring is usually an important time for those providing shelter services. For many counties across California, spring means the numbers from the 2019 homeless point-in-time count are starting to roll in, but not in Butte County, which had to delay its count due to the deadly campfire. KQED's Michelle Wiley reports. At the Jesus Center in Chico, a few people are sitting on the front steps in the sunshine. Some are hanging out and chatting, while others head inside for intake interviews with staff to assess their needs. It's one of the few shelters in the area, and even before the campfire happened last November, Butte County was struggling to find solutions for its growing homeless population, especially when it comes to housing. There was approximately 2% vacancy before the fire, now there's none. That's Laura Kutsona, executive director of the Jesus Center. We don't have enough shelter beds, and we don't have enough permanent housing for people who are currently unhoused. So you add the fire, and you bring the rough estimates here, and just in Chico is about 20,000 more people living here than were there before, and they're still doubled up. They're still in RVs here and there, sleeping in their cars, as well as some who have found housing. It's hard to determine exactly how bad the problem is without the point-in-time count, a tally of the homeless population that happens every other year and helps determine things like federal grant funding. The count is supposed to take place in January, but at the time, Butte County was still trying to recover from the deadliest fire in California history. So they got an extension, did their homeless count in March, and now they're slowly going through the results, in part because they know all eyes are on them. Jennifer Griggs is the homeless coordinator for the county. We know a lot of people are looking for this number and this information. And since we did ask questions about campfire and some social services and things like that, it's extremely important for us to put out a final complete report that is accurate. Craig says it was hard to capture the exact number of campfire survivors in the count. Many survivors don't think of them as homeless. They may be living in a trailer and that's their home. But if it's not hooked up to utilities, it still falls under the Department of Housing and Urban Development's definition of homeless, something she understands because after flash floods wrecked her house in February, 
Greg's falls under that definition, too, so she had to fill out the point-in-time survey. It was very difficult. It was emotional to take a survey and be putting on paper and saying, then I'm meeting these requirements of being homeless, because I don't feel that. I just feel that I've got a a home in disrepair, and I'm just kind of long-term camping. Greg says for many first-time homeless, like herself and survivors of the fire, it can be tough to admit what's going on. To even say that I am homeless and I, I may need some services and help because I don't want to be put in that category a lot. Butte County plans to release the results of the count in June. For NSPR News, I'm Michelle Wiley. This is After Paradise. More just ahead. You're listening to After Paradise. I'm Sarah Bohannon. And I'm Lily Jamali. The campfire destroyed nearly everything in its path, but in Helltown, a few of the community's icons were spared. That's thanks to four friends who stayed behind and battled the fire. We now turn to independent producer Matt Fiddler, who learned the details of why the old schoolhouse and the Centerville Museum are still standing. Alan Hawthorne is part of Friends of Butte Creek and longtime resident of Butte Creek Canyon. He was the first person to tell me about a group of guys who have recently become known as the Helltown Hotshots. They saved this tremendously historical uh, building here, and, and the museum is, is absolutely chock full of priceless artifacts. Uh, it would have been just a, a horrible tragedy to have lost that, but uh, fortunately we have a little bit of our history that survived, and uh, thanks to the Hotshots. To be clear, these are not professional fire jumpers, and they let me know how much they have respect for actual hotshots who jump into the middle of wildfires to fight them. These guys are just locals who grew up in Butte Creek Canyon. Greatest place on earth. And uh, This is Dharma LaRocca. He now lives in Chico, just off Bruce Road, but his family still lives up the canyon. My mom and dad live in Helltown, where I was raised. My sister lives by the Steel Bridge, which is on Centerville, and my other sister lives about halfway down. On the day the fire started, his house became kind of a gathering point for friends and family who live up the canyon. Now we're talking about four or five o'clock. Everyone's there. I got got, my block is full. The smoke is thick. We get a rumor that uh, in Helltown, where I grew up, we have a studio. It's called Helltown Sound Studio. And there's a rumor from my brother Pavi that they had the studios on fire. I go, if the studio's on fire, Helltown's gone. So 
my brother-in-law, Jason, and one of my best friends, Jeb. Uh, my name is Jeb Sisk. We're like, we can't sit around. We need to go find out what's going on. I think mostly just us wanting to go back in and, and watch it happen from a distance, if not be able to stop it, just to, to witness it. We jump in the, my brother-in-law, Jason's truck. We're like, we're going to go investigate. Now we're about six, this is about six o'clock. So it's just about dusk, about this time. Bruce Road is mayhem. It's just mayhem. There's sirens, lights everywhere, thick smoke. We're going to go shoot up the Highway 32. We took a bunch of back roads, but we started with Old 32 to avoid the CHP roadblocks. So we got around the roadblocks through a couple back roads. And we'll go all the way down to where you hit, it's called Center Gap Road. We turn the truck off. It's something that I'll never forget in my entire life. It's the canyons on fire. You're looking across the canyon. We're on top of the canyon, and we're looking down at Butte Creek Canyon and across the wall, and you're seeing it's the fingers, like all the, you know, the crap where it's coming off paradise, and it's coming down all the cracks or the, you know, the, it's just, it, and you just see red shooting down. It looks like lava flow. It was also on the same ridge we were on, but further down canyon, so it's burning up towards us. As we look down, we see some taillights in the bottom of the canyon. Wow, there's someone down there. What the heck? And my, at this point, my, I thought it was our, our uh, Uncle Billy, because it's kind of erratic driving. We have our friend Billy, we call him. You know, he's kind of like, run, he runs a little fast. <laughs> we go, there's Uncle Billy. He ain't left yet. He's driving around. He's, he's you know, and then Jason goes, no, no, that's, that's our buddy. Who would rather be called Sam for this story? He's an off-duty firefighter who also grew up in the canyon with Jeb, Dharma, and Jason. Grew up in the canyon with them. So, uh, you know, kind of guys I looked up to and I've known them for as long as I can remember. Sam returned to his home in the early afternoon, right after he heard that the fire was spreading, so he could check on his home and possibly protect it. Kind of when I came into Butte Creek Canyon, it was like a ghost town in there. And once I got home and I got out of my car and parked, I could hear propane tanks in the Paradise and Magalia area just exploding. And it just sounded what I would envision. I've never been to war, but what I would envision, it would, a war would sound like. It was just, you would just hear boom. And then a few minutes later, boom. And a few minutes later, boom. And you could hear that coming over the ridge line into Butte Creek Canyon. That's, that was the echoing and uh, I went up to my house, you know, and, and grabbed um, my, my folks live in the area. My aunt and uncle live in the area. And, and I went and ran to each house and made sure that we had everything, you know, things off of the porch and kind of got the houses ready. And we, I went to my house and I pulled all my important stuff and put it in the car just in case. Then at that point was when I kind of started looking around and I made the decision, obviously, that I was going to stay and I was going to do everything I could for my house and my loved ones and, and the people that I grew up with. So it was a bit later that evening when he gets a phone call from his buddy Jason, who says he's up Center Gap Road and can see him at the bottom of the canyon. And he's like, yeah, I see your headlights, you know. And and uh, Jason asked me, he said, should we come down? And I was like, yeah, if you want to, I could use some help. Um, but I remember looking up to Center Gap and he was like, yeah, I think we can make it down Center Gap. And I remember looking up and I was like, Center Gap's on fire. I don't think you can. Center Gap Road is like, it's on the side of a cliff. I mean, it's visually, it, it skirts right down the canyon wall. 
it's on, it looks to me like it's on fire. Looking from the bottom of the canyon, looking back up to the ridge, it looks like it had burned over Center Gap Road. But up on top of the ridge, they thought it looked passable. At that point, we're like, our brother is down there. We have a friend down there. Myself, I was reluctant at first, but um, we realized it could be done. Jason goes, jump in the truck. <laughs> Jeb and I were like, is that what we're doing? And we all looked at each other. And uh, at this point, Center Gap Road is on fire. Roll the windows up. So we drove through a couple flames um, to get down in there, but nothing life-threatening. They make it down and meet up with Sam, who you'll remember is an off-duty firefighter. And Sam was relieved that they not only made it down Center Gap Road, but that they were there to help. It was kind of a breath of fresh air for me. I was like, okay, cool, I'm not in this by myself now at this point. And yeah, I mean, just having some boys that you know, know the area. I mean, it made me feel real confident, real, you know, and just made me feel uh, we're in this together and we're going to do, you know, what, what we can. Sam gave them some basic safety instructions and they immediately start working on saving a home that was in the fire's path. And the cedar fence was on fire. So they take a chainsaw and cut the fence away from the house. To save it from crawling into the house. And Jason's like, I'm going to go to my house. He, my brother-in-law lives right there. He's, I'll be right back with some shovels and my excavator. An excavator has that big mechanical shovel arm that can dig ditches and knock things over and can travel on all sorts of terrain on its heavy-duty tracks. Meanwhile, Dharma, Jeb, and Sam remain knocking down fences, trying to save his neighbor's homes. At that point, we save those three homes <laughs> by cutting the fence down. We drive across the steel bridge and the fire is blazing on the other side. Here comes my brother-in-law with the excavator and across the bridge is another home right there by the steel bridge. It's a, it's a modular home, like those, it's nice. And my brother-in-law instantly drives his excavator up in there. It's surrounded by fire. These people had uh, piles of wood stuff all around their house. He's taking the excavator and hitting them like golf clubs. He's he's whacking everything, just getting the, the wood is on fire. And I think that house got some burns, but nothing. Um, my brother-in-law saved, you know, with the excavator, kind of cleared all the piles around it that were all on fire. At this point, they have Jason's ATV as well, and they're going to save their community of Helltown. There's four of us, break up in a couple groups, and uh, we had this line we the Centerville Road up to the cemetery, and we, we, we figure we can hold and keep an eye on about two miles. And that's what they did. They patrolled the area, putting out spot fires, creating fire breaks where they needed them. And they felt safe doing this, not just because of the instructions from Sam, but because of their knowledge of the area. They grew up here, and they knew how to get to safety. If anything ever happened to us, we're going to run down. We're all going to meet at the, at the steel bridge and meet underneath the bridge and jump in the water if we have to. So we had a meeting spot. Meanwhile, the fire was coming down the canyon walls from the south, from Paradise, closing in on the historic Centerville Schoolhouse and the museum. It was flying down. You could just hear it cracking and burning coming down the Centerville School. And my brother-in-law, Jason, goes, watch my back. I'm like, what are you doing? And he, and he drove around this little dirt road and he went around the schoolhouse and the museum and started taking the excavator and digging a trench and kind of cutting a, a path as the flames are coming down the hill. Like they're coming down, he, he probably cuts about a 40 yard ditch 
you know, maybe four four feet wide. He's taking the excavator and he's kind of like golfing and just knocking things out of its way. And then I'm yelling, hey man, it's on you now. And he makes the turn right at the edge of the schoolhouse. He cuts a trail right around like a little half moon. It was perfect the way the fire came and hit that half moon and went like, and I'm yelling at him, you gotta get out of there, you're done, man. And he turns around and right as he turns around, he blows a track on the excavator. He blows a track on the excavator. The fire hits the track. Burnt rubber's blown. He's limping out of there. You know, like the track. The machine stopped. Yeah, the machine was shipwrecked at the Centerville Schoolhouse for about a month and a half after this fire. But the fire line worked. The trench or the swath that he cut was enough to divert it around both sides of the school. So it burnt around the museum all the way to the road, and it came around the other side and burnt. And my brother-in-law saved the schoolhouse. And then he blew a track, and the, the, the excavator was done for the night. But they didn't stop there. The fire was still raging all over, not to be put out in the canyon for days. But they thought they could protect the community until the fire department arrived. That whole night we held, we would drive back and forth from the flumes, which is the top of Centerville, uh, down to the steel bridge all night long. In the meanwhile, we're at Jeb's house where the fire did a complete 360 around this beautiful house. Uh, We fought the fire all the way around the house, cut a couple trees. Uh, Luckily there, they had a natural spring where they had a little, I mean, a little bit of water off the spring. And they were able to use the water from that spring to help put out spot fires and managed to save Jeb's house. And they worked like this most of the night. We went up and down the canyon road and knocked out spot fires and cut limbs for, from, I'd say, eight, eight at night to at least 11, 12 the next day. They'd managed to find some food to eat and take a quick breather when finally they saw a fire engine piercing through the smoke to save the day. Yeah, yeah, and I looked down the road and here comes the fire truck and the, and I kind of, I put my shovel up in the air kind of like there might be something out of Braveheart or something like, you know, freedom, like the cavalry's coming, we got help. And it turned out and he, you know, slams on the brakes and he says, what have you been doing? You're not certified firefighter. I got yelled at. (laughs) Dharma, Jeb, Jason, and Sam are now known as the Helltown Hotshots, an honorary title given to them by the community that they helped save. And they all want everyone to know just how much they are thankful and how much they respect the firefighters who relieved them of their work and continued to protect Helltown and Centerville as the fire burned in the canyon for the next several days. And Sam who is an off-duty firefighter, doesn't want untrained people to start fighting fires themselves. Because when there are unaccounted civilians in a fire zone, it refocuses the effort of the firefighters. So please, don't try any of this at home. That could inhibit the firefight, and it could put a lot of stress on the fire department based on um, not only trying to put the fire out and save structures potentially, but also now we're worried about lives. And if we, have, if we don't have accountability for where people are, That's our number one goal and priority always, is life. For NSPR News, I'm Matt Fiddler. 
Well, how did you first learn about the fire that morning? What route did you use to evacuate? Where did you stay that first night when you were displaced from your home? These are the kinds of questions that NSPR is asking campfire evacuees for an oral history project that we're working on. This is in partnership with Chico State. These interviews will be preserved at the university's Merriam Library, and they'll be available to the public. The hope is that by documenting these stories, we'll be better able to understand what happened that morning and better able to prepare for these types of disasters in the future. If you were evacuated from the fire and you want to participate, please visit mynspr.org. And that's our program for Thursday, April 18th, 2019. After Paradise is produced by Mark Albert, Phil Wilkie, and Tess Vigland. Adam Raguzia composed our theme music. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. Special thanks this week to KQED. And don't forget, we want to hear your questions. You can ask anything you'd like to know about post-campfire recovery at mynspr.org. After Paradise airs every Thursday evening at 6.30. Thanks for being with us. I'm Sarah Bohannon. And I'm Lily Jamali. And this is After Paradise from North State Public Radio. Thank you.